Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. I'm Rob Aldrich. And I'm Kelly Westby. In this episode, Kelly and I talked with Charlotte Matthews, who is a SWA alum. She and I worked together at Stephen Winter Associates 20-ish years ago, going back a little while. Kelly took the lead in this discussion. I was kind of a wallflower for a lot of this, at least at the beginning. Charlotte has done a lot of different things. I'll let her describe her kind of career track in a minute. Uh, but this discussion was kind of a whirlwind. Charlotte talked about a lot of different topics with great energy and at great speed. Listening back to this, I heard tons of stuff that I didn't pick up on uh, the first time when we actually talked. I kind of found myself one step behind in this conversation. So in case anyone else is as slow as I am, I'm going to give you some very quick notes on what we talked about. Kind of three major topics, kind of in order. Number one, buildings don't perform as expected. They don't perform as they're modeled. The energy models are sometimes crazy off the wall. We talked about this, we talked about why this was, and we talked about a, a study that uh, Charlotte did when she was at Sidewalk Labs. Two, benchmarking, documenting actual energy use in actual energies in carbon emissions and how to normalize that energy or carbon in a fair, reasonable way. And number three, dynamic energy pricing, especially in residential and homes and how that could help achieve climate and affordability goals. So on this last point, uh, Dylan Martello was listening in. He was making sure we all sounded okay. He thought the concept of dynamic rates deserved a little bit more explanation. So we had Charlotte record a little bit about what dynamic rates are. And I'll run that right now before we get into the main conversation. Dynamic rate is a price of power that changes every hour based on different inputs. Okay, and the inputs could be? The actual cost of generation for the supply and local demand um, on the power grid, which could be at the level of network-wide or down to a specific circuit, which is like a neighborhood, which is actually where we need a lot of the work. A dynamic rate can, in fact, in theory, there's nothing to stop it from being different in one location relative to, to another, provided that the underlying um, underlying structure of the rate is the same so that people by the end of the month would be charged the same amount based on how they use energy. How about adding like some carbon charges to that? I mean, is that something you've heard of discussed or you've... I I mean, sure, you could put in a carbon charge and maybe that will be the future, but that's like one more regulatory thing to add to this when in fact the underlying economics of power, if you just made them more transparent and push them to the customer, it would be more fair, equitable and accurate. So I don't even need to add in this stuff. And as I mentioned, renewable energy, which is low carbon, and nuclear, low carbon, and all the other low carbon fuels, the, the, they are, virt- I mean, they, they just run all the time or they are, okay, that's a little Nuclear bit. runs all the time. Nuclear runs all the time and the feedstock is expensive, but it runs all the time and you don't want to turn it off. And renewables, um, the feedstock is zero cost. So both of those are very, very low cost on the... Uh, on the order of um, power generation sources. 
And as you get to more and more inefficient fossil fuel plants, the fuel source becomes more and more expensive than the generation source. So in so some sense, I'm that's saying, built in. I'm saying it's built in. Quick announcement before we start. We have a YouTube channel, which has some of our podcasts, including this one uh, and other stuff. Look up Stephen Winter Associates on YouTube, and we'll also have a link on the podcast page. That's winter.com, swinter.com. Here's our conversation with Charlotte. So I was an environmental science major um, in the early, early days of green building. And I went from there into an architecture firm where I actually think I was the first sustainability specialist in the US. I was so early that all of the people who legitimately knew their stuff were architects, but I came in as a non-architect sustainability specialist. Then I went to consulting for a minute and a half and met Rob, and then moved to construction management to build some of the first multifamily high-rise green buildings in New York City, and they had black water recycling and using stormwater for cooling tower makeup and green roofs and 100% ventilation to bedrooms and the whole kit and caboodle. Then I was working on the World Trade Center Memorial and learned a lot about greening construction practices, which I couldn't do from within the construction industry. So I moved to the development industry where I could be the client uh, and drive those things. And then I moved uh, was it for 10 years in development, working on green buildings, um, and then moved into infrastructure scale for neighborhoods and built a large, massive cogen plant with thermal loop connecting five buildings. And then from there, uh, you know, real estate was not, I mean, just to say, take a step back here, like when I looked back at my career then, I had had all of these first. You're kind of a big deal. Yeah, I no. Well, it's not that I was a big deal. It's like I worked on these projects that were supposed to save the world and then they yeah. didn't because when I looked back at them and they were like, on paper, the most energy efficient building in New York, mm -hmm. uh, in practice, the, it was actually the buildings where we'd had we hadn't won the war, like we hadn't won the fight where mm -hmm. we had a, a PTAC through the window, a gas fired PTAC uh, for affordable housing. And that building would use less energy. Um, yeah. the, the buildings where we had heat pumps, water source heat pumps rather than a central fan coil system, which was much cheaper for us to build, those worked, those used less energy. So at this point, when I was looking back, I realized that on paper, these were amazing projects, but we really had to go into how these buildings were operating. And development really had no interest in looking at the operation of buildings. That's not where they make their money, even if they own the buildings. So then Alphabet, a the owner of um, Google, came to the table and they wanted to do a truly sustainable project in Toronto. And when I saw that, I was like, that's what I need to be a part of. It needs to be about outcomes, not plans and design. I love the idea of really focusing on what's actually happening in buildings today and um, not necessarily what is the most exciting or sexy new technology, but how are we using energy? And so um, I I brought that same thing up with the gas, the gas pretext here. Um, uh, recently when uh, we were talking about energy codes and people, you know, especially I'm, I'm in commissioning, right? People want complex systems because we have fun like testing it and making complicated controls to make it work. And then it, you know, it turns out that really simple unitized systems work really well, which I think is a lot yeah, of what your 100%. study said. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, well, well, the study that we haven't yet mentioned, yes, but we could we, mention. We could we could get into that next. <laughs> <laughs> I was just lining us up, getting people like, they're like so There's excited. There's a study out there. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, tell us a little bit about um, why you decided to um, start a study comparing how buildings are modeled to work versus how they actually work. Yes. Does, yeah. So, so having had this, you know, 20 year career at that point, what was interesting to me is that we were, that the, the, the design of buildings had fundamentally not changed. And engineers, for all of the data that was available from buildings, were not getting that information back. And we're continuing to make the same choices and perpetuate the same, uh, and this isn't to put it on engineers, but to perpetuate the same sort of myths that energy models create about central systems, which never can turn off using less energy because of the efficiency in um, ganging all those loads together. And in fact, very simple systems, as you say, that you can turn off. Uh, distributed systems tend to use less energy and, you know, go down the line. Anyway, so because Alphabet was looking at this problem and very, very uh, interested in the outcome of having, like, really figuring out what would create an affordable, inclusive, low energy um, community, I decided that <clears throat> we really had to fix or understand energy modeling better. Like we had to actually use energy modeling that would be predictive of the outcome in a way that up until that date, whenever we did an energy model of, of a multifamily or commercial building, we would multiply it by 1.4 times in order to get what we actually thought the energy cost would be, <laughs> which just sort of says that like there was no expectation that energy modeling was good for predicting energy right. use. It was good for comparing buildings. So we... Just, I found these two incredible people in Canada because uh, that's where Sidewalk had won this RFP uh, to build uh, a, a new district. And one of them was not only uh, leading the Toronto group that does energy modeling, was the consultant for all of the new um, lead multifamily buildings happening, but also his, his sister company was hired to meter them. And meter them in, in Canada and in Toronto, they would actually meter even fan cool usage, heating and cooling in the apartment from central systems, as well as residential unit level metering, as well as all the central systems. So we had this incredible body of energy models. We had uh, 100 energy models. And then we had 19 buildings where you could actually specifically compare the energy model to the outcome at this incredibly um, disaggregated level. Was that common that most buildings would have um, like submetering? Yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this, this, this too was like in New York. I had, I had looked at doing fan cool meeting for for ten years and like tried to figure out how to do it cheaply, and it was like, no, 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 it's too expensive. Like no one cares. And you go to Toronto, and it's like, oh, that's the norm. Of course you do that. Why wouldn't you do that? How are you going to bill people for their heating and cooling? And you're like, hmm, bill question people for their heating and yeah. cooling. Like, <laughs> what are what? you saying <laughs> for efficiency? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't have to pay for your neighbor's heating and cooling. No, no, you should not. No, you should that's not. So, yeah, it was a fantastic body of, lang uh, body of language. It was this incredible <laughs> body of data. And from that, we pulled some incredible findings that I would like to share. But <laughs> there's, a little bit, there's a little bit of drama around the sharing of these, fact these figures because the initial studies did the comparison of modeled and actual, and they used the percentage differences as the smaller number versus the larger number. So in some cases, um, yes, which it, at the time on, on a PowerPoint looks pretty uh, intuitive that you would do that, that you would show that the difference between one of the numbers and the other numbers was 40% of big number. However, in fact, of course, 
if you want to do this the proper way, you should say the metering, the the, the modeled amount was this and the metered amount was that. Yeah. So the uh, reports that we will post on this podcast will show you one set of numbers and then what was actually done for the official master innovation and development plan for Toronto by Sidewalk Labs will show you the actual numbers in terms of the comparison. So did you follow that? I think I did. Also, I'm excited to link everybody to all of that in the show notes. So what, but just to do that comparison. So what you're saying is in the report, it actually did a comparison based on a percent difference yes. versus what you're showing in the, the final version is one versus the other. And you can kind of see right. both and bars always, on the chart. always modeled versus, always, so yeah. how far off was the modeled from the actual? Right. We had fairly consistent across this. Um, we actually had, I think it was, Whoever, whichever listener is reading the report can actually tell me exactly. But it was something like we had nearly 100 energy models and we had 84 existing buildings and you could compare those on average. And then we had 19 buildings that were literally the same building before and after. And in all cases, the difference between those energy use was actually only 12.5% difference. So you're like, huh, it's not great. It's not terrible. But when you reveal <laughs> where each system is, it's very, very different. So for instance... Heating, gas, the New, York, the New York City, the Toronto grid is 90% green. So 87% of the carbon emissions from buildings is from gas use. And the gas use was off by 63% for heating. Wow. That was for higher, heating. Higher was, oh, very much yeah, higher. Okay. <laughs> very much higher. And then the next one was on domestic hot water. It was 27% off. Right. So you put a boiler in a building... And it is going to use even more energy than our models show. And this also showed up that the difference between a water source heat pump building and a fan coil building. So a water source heat pump building is considered an electric system because the heat pumps in each residential unit are generating heating and cooling. However, you're tempering the water so that they have less electricity use in theory. With the, with the boiler. With a boiler, correct. And then with the traditional fan coil system, it's just hot, hot water for heating and chilled water for cooling. We found no difference in the gas use between a building with a water source heat pump system and a fan coil unit system, which is to say that that so-called electric system is not being used like an electric system. Yeah, and that's wild. And do you, is that because <clears throat> the boiler and cooling tower, like the heat injection and heat rejection are actually running at the same time? Or is that because the boiler's providing all the heat? Fair point. So we had all sorts of theories. So we looked at this. So one of the ideas was actually that the hot and chilled water uh, lines are both not well enough insulated, having come from construction. I can completely believe that. Um, and so in fact, you're constantly cooling down the hot water loop. The other is then we looked at the R value of the envelopes. And in fact, they looked at two buildings in particular to look at, you know, when you put it into the energy model, you're putting a very sort of uh, typical detail and a, and a simple calculation of the R value. In fact, it was off by, I think, 25% and always in the wrong direction. And then air infiltration, the energy model um, standards are basically passive house for how much air infiltration is happening. And in fact, there are several studies that show actual, and they were all two or three times higher. Mm. So I think it's just very additive. I think people also, if you have a boiler in the building, you use it. You generally are probably maintaining your hot water for domestic hot water too high. 
The other thing that came out was that domestic hot water is a very seasonal load. So people right. are either taking longer hot showers in the winter or the incoming water temperature is just colder. Right. So anyway, way off on the gas side. On the electric side, are you ready for the electric side? I don't, or I'm do not want... sure. I'm like still processing. We <laughs> <laughs> can keep talking about the hot water no, side. Go, go. Okay, so on the electric side, the uh, sweet electricity, which is what they call a residential unit, was actually much lower, is 26% lower. And we figured that was because they were still using plug loads that were like, I don't know, 1995 or something. So all these plugs, devices, although they're multiplying, are actually much more efficient. Uh, interestingly, the miscellaneous energy use that most energy models don't even include was a material load that was 1,594% higher than energy modeled. Pumps was higher, like everything else was higher. Now, how we only land at 13.5% or 12.5%, I have no idea. Because I keep looking at these numbers being like, I don't get it. But that said, that was where it landed. And you said there was there's a, a load, a miscellaneous plug yeah. load? In no, no, no. This is miscellaneous, like common area loads, like all, oh, the, the, all the crap area. that actually doesn't typically go in an energy model, um, which is just not caught by these other systems, turns out to be a material load. That's actually really interesting because I know when we were looking at another building, a very, very large, tall, passive house in New York, for example. Ooh, I might um, know someone who worked on that. <laughs> but it wasn't me. It was someone who, someone on my team who's far for better friend. than me. Yeah. Um, there was one thing that we get, just kept trying to look into, uh, which was the common area electric baseload. Yeah. The, the passive house models really don't know what to do with that because it's sort of scaled up from a yeah. single family home. And so um, an elevator or a yeah. oh. cold water booster pump? Elevators were 84% <clears throat> higher in reality than what was in the model. There you go. Well, yeah. I think we'll have to make some adjustments. Yeah. Well, and one other thing that was interesting was the retail space that all multifamily, at least in these cities, have that you can make assumptions for the retail space and everyone chooses the lowest for the oh, energy model. Yeah. And in fact, if you get a restaurant in there, it's like 5, 10, 25 times higher. So it makes a big difference what your actual retail is. And I'd imagine that that makes a really big difference on the gas load specifically with a restaurant. Interesting. Uh, uh, unless you're all that, electric, right? Yeah. I unless mean, you were all electric. But like the Pirelli building. We'll we'll have that on a different podcast. Well, that is a good segue to the next topic we could talk Ooh, about. Nice. All right. So fast forward, I'm now working at Sidewalk and we are trying to achieve this incredible low carbon, affordable, inclusive uh, goal. And I figure from all this that I have to get the boiler out of the building. Like it's yeah. not it's not going to be as long as it's in the building is going to get used. So let me pull it out of the building. So we did talk to all those restaurateurs and hoteliers, and even I went to ceramics places to say, "Hey, can you be all electric?" And they, and basically across the board, yes. So we pulled gas out of the project altogether, and it was all electric. And we Th- this, used this is an actual building, not this is an actual this is a... district plan for okay. the eastern waterfront of Toronto. Okay, but and just a plan at this point. It is just a plan at this point. Um, but they, they did, they agreed. Like, cause I feel like oh, a lot yeah. of times you go into a, oh, yeah. a, a restaurant well, we were, and they're like, no, you know, no Sidewalk way. was sort of the, in theory, master developer that was partnered with Waterfront Toronto, who was an incredibly progressive government body, mm. much like Better Park City had been early in my career for those buildings that had the black water tanks and all the rest of it. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, they were nervous, but it was okay to go all electric. And that is the future of restaurants, I think, because in fact, 
you don't have all the sound and all the exhaust and all the rest of it. And it's actually just a much better environment to work. We actually have a whole podcast on that. Oh, do you know? <laughs> yeah. Well. A chef who's obsessed with electric, yes. all electric kitchens. Yes. That's very cool. That is yeah. cool. Um, so we, in order to reduce the electrical load, we actually did create a thermal loop that was an ambient temperature loop. Um, we also had this vision of actually being climate positive, which meant we actually had to generate more energy on site to export it and offset existing emissions in the city of Toronto. Mm. Otherwise, I confess, I might not have done a thermal loop because I think thermal loop is just a big base load and it's circulating. And if you get your building super, super energy efficient, which these were, you shouldn't need a loop. Mm. But that said, we had we had bigger goals. So we connected. But how does that, yeah. because the loop would feed other parts loop, of town or? Well, the loop was connected, connected the buildings, but also more, more importantly, connected to um, a pumping station. So we were getting sewer heat recovery. We also got some sewer heat recovery from the buildings themselves. But obviously we could use all the heat generated by the city of Toronto upstream, which was big. We, there was a data center, not a Google one, uh, nearby that was willing to connect to us. And they said, actually, they are used to being sort of the center of these energy nodes, which was cool. And then downtown Toronto actually has a chilled water loop fed by the lake. And we could tap into the return side of that chilled water loop and get heat throughout, throughout the year because commercial buildings are generally in cooling. So we had all that going into our central loop to reduce the lift that the heat pumps would have to do, particularly for um, domestic hot water. We had to have two sets of heat pumps to get to the domestic hot water temperatures. So after all this, we had reduced the carbon emissions like 75, 80%. And I was just like, this is it, this is it. We gotta green the Nailed grid it. and electrify, we got it. But the problem is cost because obviously all this, all this costs quite a bit, but you know, we could have, we could have figured that out. But the actual cost of electricity for the residential homes, the cost of electricity in Toronto is five times that of gas. And with all of these things we were doing, the efficiency of our thermal energy was only like two and a half, maybe three times more better than a, than a boiler. So you're not making up the true difference of that five times. So that's what led us. And then, you know, couple couple uh, add on top of that, not only are you fuel switching, but then you're actually pushing you're increasing the capacity of the grid required. So the cost of electricity has to increase to cover that escalation and investment required. And then if you thought about scaling this beyond those countries that are comfortable with nuclear, you're actually having to double the capacity of your generation and storage to meet all of your renewable energy goals. So for all of that, the price of electricity was just escalating, escalating, escalating. And we were on a collision course between affordability and green grid. So I, the team created a product to change the way we price and manage electricity, which is what I'm now doing. Mm. So, Rob. So, I mean, yeah, a, lo a lot of thoughts. I mean, district systems, I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot mm. of things, including yeah. district systems. Going back to the thing that you first started, you yeah. know, these, these big central plants right. and yeah. buildings are way less efficient than these small yeah simple distributed systems. Yeah. And now we're going to make yeah. a much bigger, you know, whole chunk yeah. of the city district system. The complexity, the cost, yeah. the the infrastructure, the the things that can go wrong. I've seen I've seen papers mostly yeah. from Europe. Um, maybe some maybe like Europe. Iceland where there's you know geothermal, Real, yeah, you know, right, right. I mean 
you know, but it, it's, I'm, I'm always skeptical. I'm, I'm always leaning towards the simplify, simplify, simplify. Rob, I'm did, 100% on your side. And this is not, this is not that direction. Did it, you it just look seems... at, like, if you took out that requirement for positive and just yes, looked at net? we would not. I think across the board, we didn't think we would do the thermal loop. I mean, and it's, it's tricky. So, you know, I built this thermal loop in New York. Right. With the help of some other people. Um, <laughs> just just, just, with my just to like out there. I mean, and this um, is not just a pa- on paper. This is that, actual... that, that one was real. That one yeah. was like $175 million of real. Okay. Um, and that was because it was a hot and chilled water system feeding buildings that used a ton of energy. And it was the grid is so brown in New York City that doing cogen is a great deal. And if you can capture the waste heat created and distribute it, like it made sense. And we had five buildings going up. So, but when I went to uh, this green grid, I was like, well, the last thing you you don't want to do hot water and chilled water because you're, you know, you'll never get to that heated temperature and you don't need it. Uh, You don't have to also insulate the pipes, blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, and if we do really, really passive house level buildings, which was the expectation, why would we have constantly pump water and all the engineers with their energy models will tell you that pumping water doesn't use a lot of energy but yet it's still there and we talked to some passive house developments um one specifically in in england and they said yeah the the local government really want us to do a thermal loop like all of these city governments think the way of the future is connecting buildings and having district energy and all the rest of it but they said we also think it uses more energy than our passive house (laughs) requires (laughs) And so I was sort of banging the drum on this, but again, we did have this climate positive goal and we all know that like, it's not just about reducing carbon at some point, we gotta like go in the opposite direction. So um, it is awesome to capture all this free energy. Like I, I don't have a, you know, if these, these big sewage heat treatment plants, sewers in general, there's so much excess heat. It does make sense to capture that, recapture that. And in which case, you should probably distribute it to some buildings. Um, But as a general rule, I think it is way too hard to connect buildings and the benefits. Even when we saw Hudson Yards, like these buildings, residential and commercial and retail buildings, are not that complimentary in loads. Like everyone thinks they are, but in fact, buildings today are not turned down in any way, shape, form. So, yeah. Yeah, which I think we saw through the last couple of years that they don't really turn down. Yes, exactly. Yeah, as much, at least as much. They don't turn down with occupancy. Right. Which actually brings me into another question about weatherization or weatherization about um, normalization. Ugh. And is are our normalization metrics even right? And I don't do, like those either. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do we put that aside? <laughs> no, well, I can. I have a thing for that. <laughs> Go for it. Really? Okay. There's this side project we were also working on for Sidewalk Labs, which was that you need to benchmark buildings differently that if you're actually mm. trying to look at when you know what is the supply of uh, as as the as you move toward a greener grid the GHG intensity of that grid changes by the hour based on what's available and you do want buildings to be turning up and down based on occupancy so that we can get to this place where commercial buildings turn down when everyone goes home and resi buildings turn up. Right. So we actually started envisioning a outcome based code which would take hourly data, hourly occupancy data, hourly energy data from the buildings and couple that with hourly weather data and the hourly GHG intensity of the grid so that those buildings that were actually taking that information in could respond and demonstrate that they were high performance. We then actually got a grant from NYSERDA 
to build a prototype of that. And so right now there is a, a group led by JBMB, uh, who's a local engineer, who it has, we've got eight or so uh, residential bu- uh, residential buildings, eight or so uh, commercial developers who are contributing the occupancy data and mm. we're getting energy data through Con Ed, but we're basically trying to show what the future of, of benchmarking should be and get away from like, yeah, I, don't, I mean, to me, it's total a, building energy use. Yeah, and then all these normalizations that you do that basically you're stripping out energy from the building that is really using. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because then I think at that point, like with normalization, effectively, like a building with a data center that should already be moving its data to the cloud is treated the same as the building who's sending all of its data to the cloud, which is now fed totally by renewable energy because the Amazons and the Googles of the world are competing on who can be greener. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think the other aspect too, and and maybe it, it, I guess to me, I was thinking about it from the other angle of if your building is only sixty percent occupied or something like that, mm-hmm. and you like normalize up to a hundred, yeah, like, do we actually know what that difference is? I think we don't really know. No, I think and it, right now that's what everyone is doing. I mean, that the models put in some sort of schedule, but then how the building operates, they basically use the same schedule in their benchmarking. They just say, oh yeah, full time occupancy is X, and then they never track or show how the building's actually performing relative to its occupancy. Right. And I think that was always the thing um, that made it difficult in affordable housing, too, because Mm -hmm. if you have a lot higher, um, actually, it's not always the thing. It's a completely different thing, but it's related. Yeah. (laughs) If you have a lot higher occupant density, then you're obviously going to use more energy, right? And so um, did you also look at like use per person or use per? So that's what it is, is basically energy use per person hour. Okay. In the building. Um, And the idea would be that if we can do it for commercial where there's far less privacy concerns, you can do it for residential too. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, residential is a little bit different, but that said, I 100% agree with you that an affordable building that has, in general, the, as- the, the thinking is that there's more people per square foot should right. certainly get a greater allocation of energy than the building that is half occupied uh, and has very large units per, per group, yeah. family. So how is that different than just pricing energy differently? Ah. And like, and not just a flat fee, you know, time of use related to carbon impacts related to the type of energy, but well, I mean, it's a different, if you're talking about benchmarking and saying, all right, this is the level you have to meet to comply with some program, some code, some policy versus just attaching, (laughs) raising the price of energy to shift people away from energy you know, the, high carbon intensive yeah. types of energy at the right times. Regard, I mean, it seems like normalizing based on occupancy. It seems complicated. It's, well, here's my here's my hypothesis, which is why I'm doing this benchmarking thing for commercial buildings, and I'm doing this. Let's price power and manage it differently for residential, because in my read of the world, residential is more price sensitive versus commercial relative to the cost of labor. People don't really don't care what the cost of energy. And right now, most big buildings are already on a dynamic price of power with demand charges and all the rest of it. And it just doesn't show up. On residential, you're talking like single family, low rise, really Yeah, individual versus- residential customers okay. are by and large price sensitive to power. Right. I mean, obviously, there's an equity issue and a quality issue. Oh, absolutely. But, absolutely. Uh, but that said, I, in general, don't think the commercial market is really that sensitive to energy. 
and in energy fact, costs, energy yeah. costs. And my in my own experience of why I left this development company was because I could show them that we could, you know, not spend. We we could make all our money back with a bunch of measures to actually track our energy use and find efficiencies. And they were just like, it's not worth the headache. And I'm not getting like, you know, twenty dollars on the dollar for this kind of work. Like, relative to our resource, our labor, we would rather spend that energy on development and making a ton of money versus like, you know, spending a ton of effort <laughs> extracting a little bit of wasted energy, which is, as we all know, in energy efficiency, how it feels sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, um, so it's like you said, Rob, there were two, there are two levers. There's the, the price of power lever, and then there's the, um, carbon there's a benchmarking that's used in you know well-intentioned tenants will make a requirement that the building has to be energy star certified uh our city is now saying you you have to be benchmarked and then with local on 97 it's another benchmarking unfortunately that doesn't include occupancy at all um so what i am hoping to do is you know use this new technological advancement that we have as a society done or created or whatever had and actually change the way we benchmark buildings to make it much more accurate mm. and equitable and fair and actually incentivize for the things you want, which is load shifting and demand management. Um, and similarly, in the home, there's a lot of optimization we can do where devices are optimized against a price of power that should be dynamic based on demand on the system and the cost of the supply. I mean, if we had a, if we had enough data coming out of these buildings and the platforms to synthesize it, you could move toward an outcome-based code which is effectively looking at how a building is actually performing based on its population or its occupancy. Which I love the term that you use because I've heard so much, like right now, or I think it's 2025, we have to work towards a performance-based code. Mm. But performance sounds like you're going to measure the performance and judge based on that. But what it actually means is you're gonna build an, ener or an energy model yeah. that generates some sort of EUI and judge the building based on that. So it's yeah. not actually that different, except that you're, in theory, you're not doing a comparative-based model anymore. You're doing a, a predictive model. But if we sort of made the case earlier this discussion <laughs> that energy models n maybe aren't really predictive, then, um, I mean, maybe we can change well, all the, our this is, I mean, this is why I worked a lot when I was on this project, because <laughs> you found yourself in this circle where you're like, okay, I got to fix the model so I can actually have a good prediction because I can't, you know, if we're going to do an outcome-based code, like we right. can't we fail know because, what we're doing. you know, what it, yeah. and then, and then who pays who if we fail to meet the thing we set ourselves up to do. But nonetheless, like that is actually what we want to do is improve energy modeling so that it actually matters about whether it's accurate or not. And so that people can make the right decisions and toward achieving a high performance building and then actually track outcomes. But what it like, is this wild to say, like, what if we put all the money that we're putting into energy models into like um, meters and data analysis and we looked at how actual buildings were like actual actually using energy and we just used the right systems like as they exist now? I, right? Well, I think it goes back to, I mean, I, I'm impressed you should say that as a company who actually I think does a fair amount of energy um. modeling. But I like that you're going to go there because we're, we're authentic, we're true, we're honest. But even in that scenario, particularly if there's a penalty, if you don't meet the outcome, like every developer is going to be like, great, so there's this outcome I have to meet. By the way, you need to design me a building to meet that outcome. So you need energy modeling to get you closer. So what we just need to do is, you know, 
create better modeling standards to get more accurate predictive models that then help you get to those outcomes. And then you understand that every building is going to be commissioned because no building performs the day it opens. Um, and then you kind of keep ratcheting. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. Kelly's uh, Kelly's gonna take get that the commission, the need I for like commissioning. The commissioning. She has to I, I, I wasn't even I, I wasn't even giving her the plug, and then as soon as I was like, as I was like, the words were coming out of my mouth, it's like Nailed Kelly's it. all of a sudden like quiet. Yeah, listening <laughs> and being like, <laughs> tell me more about that. Actually, um, that's in the report. The commercial buildings report talks about how much every building improved based on commissioning, and the ones that actually were the high performance didn't start there; they got there through commissioning. So, so the the what you're doing now is looking at much more, correct me if I'm wrong, much more complicated, much more intense method of normalization. No. Good. Totally not. Okay. Um, I'm actually extracting myself for the complexity of buildings and their little snowflake-like problems <laughs> and saying that the fundamental structure needs to ch change because Fundamental structure of? How we price and manage electricity. Okay. Mm. Because that's what you can do when you work for an alphabet company is okay. you can say, you know what? I got, I did my bit. I worked really, really hard to make a bunch of buildings a little bit better than they would have been. Turns out it didn't change the world and I'm exhausted. Um, now I'm going to like try the silver bullet approach, which I'm going to try something that could fail, but is really, really big. And I have this wonderful company supporting me as I do it. So that is that... I think we need to get to dynamic pricing of power, much like you mentioned earlier, which is more normal for commercial buildings, but we need to bring it to the residential sector and not just do the supply price, but also the T&D, transmission distribution, which is 50% of the cost. So therefore, you need a really big difference between the peak and off-peak to actually incentivize or, or create a market that gives the true value of batteries and load shifting and all these smart devices that we can put in our homes to make sure that based, our- More based on carbon, right? Is well, I mean, I don't, I mean, in fact, it's not direct, but it's pretty, it's pretty close. I would say that, okay, well then you can get into a di dialogue with like Watt Time who will tell you that there is actually no direct relationship between the marginal emissions and the price of power. But if you look at average, there generally is, which is in the ramping of energy, if you have a lot of renewable energy, it's very it's very low cost to generate versus fossil fuel versus inefficient fossil fuel plants. So if you have a price of electricity that tracks with the true cost of generation, as well as local demand on the grid, because every time you use more energy, when it's already peak time, you are potentially causing the next trillion dollar generation plant and new capacity expansion and digging up the roads to build new um, cables to deliver power, in which case you should pay a lot for that electricity. And in fact, you know what, it be, should be so much that you don't actually run your dishwasher right after you ate dinner at the high point of peak demand in your local neighborhood. Your dishwasher should know that it can run at two o'clock in the morning because you're going to empty it at seven o'clock in the morning anyway. So our devices in our home, our hot water tanks currently will refill the minute you take the shower. Again, not a great time to do it because that's peak demand and peak time in a residential neighborhood. Middle of the night, great. You'll still have enough uh, hot water for the shower. Your EV charger, you go down the line. So effectively, if we had used the price of power as the, the thing that synchronizes all the smarts that are available in people's homes, we can create over time 
uh, a, a lower cost of energy because we're not going to keep increasing the capacity of the grid and having to build new uh, renewable generation because we actually can't use the generation when it's available and we're curtailing it and then we're having to um, use gas generators, uh, gas fossil fuel generators later. Um, and basically, I would argue that in time, you can decouple the bill experience from the price of power because the right now, so many residential, so many utilities charge residential customers on a flat price flat price of power, believing that, and you know, it's true, people have no idea what the cost of power is and they don't know peak off peak, never mind a dynamic price of power. But at the same time, if you're going to install a heat pump hot water heater, you have no idea how much energy that's going to use. So it doesn't help you that you know the price of electricity if you have no idea how much that's going to use. Your EV go down the line. So people today have no idea how much energy anything uses and how much it costs them. So like, just remove that from the equation. Use the price of power as this coordinating signal, have all these smart devices, you get a 24-hour forecast, and then can find the right time to do what they need to do while also meeting the comfort of residents, and overall get to a much more predictable low-cost bill. So you think that's viable in all sectors, but you're seeing it's a bigger, it's just more non-existent in residential, like single-family residential. Yeah, I think it's more, I mean, I, I think in the residential Basically, if we're on the current trajectory of how we manage electricity completely demand-driven, that people have no idea what the price of power, what the true cost of power is on the system, and therefore use it whenever they wish, and yep. every, then what is happening is that the price of electricity is just escalating. It just has to keep growing, 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 at which point no one is going to switch from their gas boiler to electric. Yep. So if we're ever going to electrify the residential sector, we actually need to be very aggressive on the cost of electricity for that sector. And then the resident and then the commercial market, you know, again, I think it's about benchmarking because whatever the cost of energy is, they're gonna be like, eh, it's not as much as salaries. Yeah, right. So the idea is, yes, electrification plus renewable grid equals decarbonization. But what you're saying is you need this added element of uh, ensuring affordability. And to do that, you need to price power by time of day. Correct. Uh, and dynamically, because Dyn if the sun shines, you have a ton of very cheap solar. If the sun does not shine, you don't. So, and you had mentioned 24-hour forecasting. Yeah. So how does that um, relate to, you know, if the sun doesn't shine at the right because time of day? Because... <clears throat> Or just Google control that too. Our, our weather for, for forecasts are not awesome because we try to do this at a month. And in fact, the weather forecast for a month is very, very bad. On a 24-hour rolling hourly forecast, you can get a pretty good idea at which point you can then like change. But basically, uh, you know, you over 24 hours, you can get a pretty good idea of where like a good time to heat hot water is and where a bad time is and just try and avoid that. Yeah. Yes, Rob. All right. So on, on the on the commercial side of things, mm, mm. most rate structures have some kind of demand charges where, right. you know, they, they pay for peak demand and, and also time of use. They, there's usually some element of right. both. Or of even those. dynamic. I mean, you might even pay. It might even be dynamic. Dollars. But I think what you had just said, it's really not Relevant. huge in their, in their overall operating mm -hmm. costs. Yeah. So you're saying adjust benchmarking so that they kind of have to respond. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Via, you know, charges. Hey, look, you paid for, you know, 20% more carbon emissions than you're allowed per your normalized yeah. benchmark. 
pay us the money, you know, pay the state, yeah, pay I the mean, city, pay somebody the, you know, pay for I that. Mean, Is New that- York City, I think most, most of the people who have been leaders in real estate from the development world would agree that you need to codify some cap on buildings or okay. some benchmarking buildings or something. The problem then arises is that the way that we benchmark buildings is flawed and it doesn't actually distinguish those that are really doing the right thing for maintaining a lower cost, smaller green grid from those who aren't. And then it's an abomination that you don't look at occupancy because that means the building has got like hotel desking and is using their space all the time is somehow not credited for that relative to the the law office that's 50% occupied and keeps their lobby freaking chilled all day. Okay. Another thing that the study found is that like there is so much variation in energy use within residential apartments. And if you think about it, you can never get there because you're like, I don't know, everyone's got the same stuff in their apartment, yeah. right? There's like a TV, but in fact, a couple computers. Exactly. But in fact, the study showed that uh, like the bell curve had a one in to four. There was like this the majority of people were between 1,000 kilowatt hours a year and 4,000. Right. But like that's a one to four. And then the tail went all the way to 10,000 kilowatt right. hours. And when we used to look in my in the portfolio of my of the development company I worked for, it was the same thing. It was like between one and four. Like there was a f- four times four spread, um, which is why I continue to think like there is a lot of energy for us to manage better in residential units. Right. So on the residential side, and, and again, this may be for single family or for low rise or even for high rise. I agree that the, the variability is colossal. I was floored with, you know, 20 years ago when we were working with a production builder. They were building the same exact house. We got them to do, you know, good windows, tight ducts, good insulation, good air sealing. And same house, same block, five times difference in how much electricity they're using. It, it was kind of eye-opening. Our models, you know, forget the models. Yeah, right. But so on the commercial side, I, I got what you said about the need for a better, I mean, better benchmarking, accounting for occupancy. And then I think, yeah, I mean, you get a, there has to be some teeth to it. There mm, has to be a yeah. stick to mm. make people pay if, if they, if they exceed it. And the, you got to you know, make a business case for it. Right. And even if it's above and stick. beyond the energy prices. Yeah. It sounds like that's irrelevant. So on the, on the residential side, if we're talking about, we need, we need, dynamic pricing and we need technology in the homes yeah. to respond to dynamic pricing. Yeah. What's the biggest lift? Is it is it the technology side or is it the policy and the tariff side? So my hypothesis on this is that most utilities and regulators, well, I don't know. I mean, regulators are not as close to it, but I think most utilities I've talked to would say, yes, we think dynamic pricing is the future. In fact, we would love to get to time of use because we can't even get to there. But I can't risk that with my my residential customer until they are protected. So that's why my group is focusing on let's create the technology that protects the residential customer from the dynamic rate, at which point we unlock the power of dynamic rates. So technology is the is the first step. It's kind of a chicken or an egg. Yeah, and I think so. Yeah, and your so. take is yeah, technology and my take first. Is, well, so, so California, the regulator, is actually asking the utilities to do a pilot with real-time pricing, where it's not as deep as I would like to go, because I think studies show that you need a peak to off-peak of six times to really see a big shift. And if you couple with automation, you improve the shifting, and you should make your peaks really, really short so people can actually shift when they do something versus... Con Ed, whose peak time, last I checked, was 8 o'clock in the morning until midnight, which is basically a joke. 
I mean, no one can shift <laughs> off of that. So I'm not gonna wait to shower until midnight. <laughs> unless like Rinse. you really have learned how to program your hot water heater in your EV, which I would argue most people have no idea yeah, how to do that. Right. Um, so, so there is one regulator, tip of the spear, who is moving in that direction and the utility is like, great, we need to protect the customer. Like we're not on board, you know, like we're not, we're not loving this idea yet. Um, and then a lot of the other utilities with whom we've talked to are saying, we're so excited by what you're doing here. We don't want to be the pilot, yeah. but call us when you have something. <laughs> yeah. We're more of a follower. Um, and, and anyway, I sort of, I continue to think if you build it, they will come, even though my life experience tells me that that's not the case. But I definitely think that if you think about the future, 20 years down the line, of course, it's like the Jetsons version is like, of course, our homes are automated. Like we have all these smart devices right. and of course they know what to do and when to do it. Um, and therefore we could have a dynamic rate and I just don't want to wait that long. So I am trying to force the transition and believe that there is a commercial scalable product that can be created out of this that changes the conversation and ideally makes enough money to pay back my incredibly generous employer. <laughs> and so you're... Um, you're looking at the technology side. And so what like what specific aspects are you working on right now? We are specifically uh, working on something we call the home scheduler, which uh, works with third party devices, aka a hot water heater controller, an EV charger, or even just the EV direct, um, the various the smart thermostat. And then we ha we're actually using uh, a watt time carbon signal right now as the price signal waiting for this real-time price to emerge. Um, and then uh, just, you know, A, it takes working with the third-party device manufacturers who each have their own controls. So they're not quite like, oh yeah, just pretend that we're like this op you know, open API device, do whatever you want. So we have to work with them to basically work within the the control characteristics that they will allow and then encourage them to give us more. Mm. Um, but then what we're really trying to learn is how to learn people's um, patterns in a very non-invasive, privacy-protecting <laughs> way um, and to be enough of a set it and forget it that, you know, one of the people in our prototype literally did forget that we were controlling his EV and we were like, win, nice. win. But... To have an override capability that is simple enough that I often use my 82-year-old mother as my focus group, which is you can't show too much stuff on that phone or else she's like, what do I need? You're like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Like, <laughs> But I understand that I have no idea how to control my hot water heater. So if you control it for me, just make sure that I can press some sort of override when I have like five guests and we need hot water and you know we're out. So what we're actually pretty keen to do is have enough, get to the point where we can do enough control that we can actually potentially annoy people and therefore learn how not to annoy people and also how to nudge them because obviously people are different in how aggressive they want to be in finding savings. And what I don't want to do is onboard someone and they fill out a schedule of, you know, like, what do you do in a day? Like, that's the first reason someone will say, uh, forget that, every day is different. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. So we need to actually learn what their, what their schedule is and then learn how aggressive they want to find savings and risk, you know, that there isn't hot water when they come home early. Mm. And so are you, it sounds like you have a pilot 
kind of out there. Yeah. You're, you're getting feedback from the customers then? We uh, did a pilot with a small utility actually last year who built an MVP for us because at that time I was still the head of sustainability, not on the tech side. Built a what? And a uh, minimum viable product, MVP. <laughs> okay. Don't I sound very techie? Good. Um, so they built one that- Did you fly in from Silicon Valley this morning? <laughs> no, but I'm flying there on Monday. <laughs> um, so they built one that they did use sort of the, op- you know, just hardware that you can control totally. And they had a smart thermostat and they could do air conditioning and they, we didn't have any electric hot water heating and any EVs in London, Ontario. But basically for a year, they tested whether we could create a rate, a dynamic rate, um, and then predict it well enough to know when to t- load shift. And then we also had a community battery and, and community solar so that um, we had a, a model of a battery um, and then a real solar array. And people could could purchase shares of this community asset. And then the home scheduler would say, oh, this person's already got battery power to cover this time. So I won't actually adjust the devices in their home and things like that to basically try and actually look at sort of mini grids on the grid. Um, and it wasn't by any means the perfect design of what we want to do, but it did say that people understand a dynamic rate and that they're willing to accept control in their home. And so then we signed up a major utility to be our co-creation partner because we do actually have the humility to know that as a tech company, we should not try this on our own. Um, and so I'm actually meeting with them on Monday to begin our workshopping because after a year of, um, talking to a bunch of utilities, we found our perfect partner. And then now we are growing our engineering team. Every week we get a new team member um, and building this prototype using friends and families' homes um, with the (laughs) idea of moving toward, you know, 50 colleagues. And then eventually we have this real pilot in in the fall of 2023 with real people, real bills, real rates. And so was the pilot in Toronto also friends and family? So uh, wait, we didn't. Oh, in or London, the, Ontario. In London, Ontario. Sorry. Uh, that was actually this this teeny little regional utility has got uh, two hundred thousand customers, and their IT team is like one hundred fifty or two hundred fifty people because they are the back. This is how I describe it. If they're listening to this, I, forgive me if I get it wrong. But they're back, basically the back office of all of these other small re- regional utilities. So they had this very impressive uh, <laughs> tech team who built this prototype and had all of these customers who have been participating in all sorts of pilots that they do. So they had 100 real customers. But in that case, it was a shadow bill. So in reality, people were like, "Uh, I can see on this app that I saved money, but I actually didn't see it (laughs) quite the same way on my meter. So in fact, why am I going to let you adjust my thermostat? Because like, who wins here? (laughs) And you were like, us. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) we're learning. (laughs) Cool. Okay. So then... Fast forwarding, you have you want to deploy this with um, people that you know in a local region with a lo- with one specific utility. Oh no! So eventually, when we get to the true pilot in fall of twenty twenty three, it will be real people who we don't know. Oh, okay. Um, with a real bill. So by that point, we really have to be good because that's really our product launch. Effectively, at which point I would like to be able to say within four to six months this is working and then, sh- sh- you know, bring it to all the other utilities and say, now. start. Yeah. yeah. Listen to me. 
Cool. How much, I mean, how much does the technology cost? How much, how, like, hardware and yeah. who pays for the hardware? I'm thinking, you know, for lower income yeah, folks, for it's sure. a big concern. So we are trying to, in the in the MVP version, minimal viable product version, we did have hardware in the home that was connecting to these devices. We're trying to not do that because when we've seen other people try and do this and they always have to install hardware that's very expensive and really yep. limits your scale. Um, it is about getting smart devices into people's homes. Yep. My impression is that there's a lot of attention on low, median income households as it is, and a lot of incentive programs targeting them. They are not generally participating in those programs, which is part of what we're trying to fix. Um, so we're trying to make it very easy for everyone, because one of the things we learned in London, Ontario, is people don't self-identify as LMI. They don't self-identify as needing help or wanting help. And what we want to do, therefore, is basically tell everyone, hey, see if you qualify for a device. Let's make it super easy to come to your home and yeah. like, get that installed. So we're going to work with the utilities' existing programs, of which they already have programs for hot, heat pump hot water heaters and batteries and all sorts of other things. But they might need all of that. They might yeah. need a new water heater. They might yeah. need a new heating and cooling system. Yeah. They might need a new dishwasher. Well, I'm hoping all these federal dollars towards energy efficiency retrofits and electrification can actually start okay. targeting making it smart. Because right now there's all this new enthusiasm on electrification, but not on make sure it's smart. And actually, hey, when you install it, it should be pre-commissioned to respond to some rate mm -hmm. so that yeah. people can take advantage of super, super inexpensive solar power and then like just avoid those times when it's really expensive there's lots of talk there's lots of talk but it's all been talk it's like oh smart grid smart appliances it's it's yeah. the solution so, but, it, but no, you mean, know nothing's nothing's happening yeah i just have always any... found you got to do proof of concept i mean that's why i okay. love being in development is basically you're like every new development is like a proof of concept of this great okay. idea someone had had where you could learn was it a great idea how you know was it good or not um, and that was fun. And, and the tricky thing with development is like with large building development, particularly, right, is that the proof of concept takes so long yeah. to prove. Well, it turns out so does building a product for utilities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, actually, tech is a lot faster, but then the utility industry is a lot slower um, in, in moving. But that said, yes. Um, and it's been exciting. I mean, now that we actually have a team of engineers growing, how incredibly quickly we've started accelerating our progress. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty great. And what, like, which aspect of, like, which particular aspect? Is it a controls? Is it an integration problem? Is it the actual predicting that is the biggest issue or the biggest? Um, yes, yes. And I don't think predicting, although I say that, but in fact, originally we wanted to have a totally predictable bill. So you literally, we could predict what your bill would be and then it would say, hey, do you want to be 20% less? And then that would, but in mm. fact, it turned out that predicting a month out was so hard that we did let that go. So yes, yes, and yes. I, I am worried the most about other device manufacturers playing ball, that mm. device manufacturers will, are smart device manufacturers will all get to sell so much so many more smart devices when there's a dynamic rate so because right now they can't adjust it's not worth adjusting hour to hour because like the difference in price is so small they save three cents at the end of that so if we had a dynamic rate with radical different with a radical difference between peak and trough you would increase the market for smart devices the problem is is you won't get there unless you can actually coordinate the smart devices well enough in someone's home that you give them protection and a more predictable bill. Um, so we're kind of trying to make that pitch, but right now we're working with those who kind of get that. Um, and then of course being part of Google helps because we can learn so much from Nest and actually work with Nest, which is not to say that they'll be any different in their commercial interest about, hey, we actually know how to control thermostats better than you do. 
true story. Um, so what we just need to do is really work within the capabilities that OEMs or device manufacturers will give us and try and coordinate it well enough that there's a predictable, simple experience for users. And then ideally grow from the five to 10 that we capture at the beginning for the pilot. Uh, once device manufacturers think that this is a thing, then hopefully we'll grow in interest. But they also currently make money by like charging you $15 a year to access their device, at which point like you're starting to add more costs. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we found at the smaller, even multifamily buildings that once like you, you know, there's a lot of money out there for smart building technology and whatever, and you can kind of make it work in some cases. And sometimes you can take it and pay for the BMS that you're going to get anyway, mm -hmm. or whatever. But like, it's really expensive. It's yeah. expensive to monitor that data. It's expensive to store it, to track it. And the like carrying cost of all of that ends up adding up. And then, like you said, the integration is never as seamless. Yeah. And if you're talking about single family homes, like you don't have like controls contractors in the single family home market that I know of. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think, like, <laughs> I mean, we're definitely, <laughs> we're definitely tackling this in a different way than building management systems. I will say that right. sidewalk, uh, out of the automation of buildings, we actually had vision for a tenant commercial product, mm -hmm. a base building product. And we started with the commercial tenant space because in fact, commercial tenant space is basically unmanaged because most commercial tenants aren't installing a BMS. Yeah. And everyone's like adjusting the thermostat willy-nilly and no one turns the things on or off. And, and so out of that, Sidewalk created a product called Mesa, which now is at Google. Yeah, it's interesting because we actually, I was just talking to your colleagues at Mesa earlier Good. this week about um, oh, nice. some class B, and, class B and C office buildings, which I see as like, seg you know, a big segment of the market yeah. that, that needs its own solution, right? Yeah. So it's like a similar thing of there is an individual tenant with their own needs and there's the base building with its needs and yeah. it used to be like the no uh you know commercial owner wanted to do anything inside of the tenant space they could yeah. do it and they do what they want and they're responsible for the maintenance and if they have high energy bills whatever and now right. we're seeing a very different reality for because of benchmarking including whole building right when we have you back on the podcast in five years <laughs> what will we be talking about then um, my life in France. <laughs> <laughs> Are you moving there now? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe in but five maybe years. maybe in five years. No, I have a job to do right now. Uh, and then I will succeed and then I will. Oh, okay. In I got Perfect. it. Perfect. Um, there you go. Nice. In five years, I suspect we'll still be talking about this, to be honest. <laughs> this one could take a while. But my, my aspiration would be to have a very successful pilot that proves this is very possible, that gets the device manufacturers to get excited and interested and start sort of coalescing a little bit, little bit faster than they are, and that there will be a, a progression of utilities and regulators moving in this direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's going to be a, a long slog, but I think it's an exciting one and will move us in the right direction. Yeah, that's it awesome. It is exciting, absolutely. Well, it was really lovely to have yeah, you on the podcast thank you. today. I forgot this a big was really fun. Thing in front yeah. Of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks Charlotte. for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks to Charlotte and to Kelly for taking point on this. It was great to get together uh, in person and record. That was actually the first time I was in our New York City office since COVID. It was very cool to see folks there. 
Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. We are focused on making buildings better in many, many ways. More efficient, more healthy, more resilient, more accessible, more comfortable, more sustainable. Uh, the list goes on. Check us out at swinter.com. That's swinter.com. We are hiring in all four of our offices, Boston, Connecticut, Manhattan, and Washington, D.C. Uh, check out our careers page, swinter.com careers. If you're looking or pass it on, if you know someone who's looking, I counted 29 postings there today. So uh, we have, we're looking for quite a range of people. Thank you for listening. Thanks to the team here, especially Alex Mirabile, who orchestrates this whole thing and does most of the editing. And that now includes video editing. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.